Support for the game podcast is brought to you by StarCityGames.com, the world's largest independent retailer for Magic the Gathering singles and supplies and home for the best strategy content on the web. If you would like to support the game podcast, feel free to check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash the G-A-M podcast. Welcome to episode 80 of the Game Podcast. I'm Jerry Thompson. Here with me is Brian Thorn Elemental Gottlieb. Dude, that's one of my favorite creatures. What's going on? Well, it, it's also a reference to uh, your hometown of Seattle. Nobody told me when I moved here that every single plant around can kill you. Everything is super sharp. I've been stabbed by like this weird razor leaf plant in my front yard. And then I was picking up like dried leaves and they were also sharp and there's thorn bushes all over the place. So I, I feel very much like a thorn elemental right now. I've just been poked constantly over the last few days as, as I do yard work. Is this something you've experienced in Seattle or is this a, a unique experience that I'm having right now just with my property? Dude, my solution to that is to not do yard work. Tell my wife that, and then I will also sign up for that solution. But as it stands, I'm, I'm doing a lot of yard work right now. No, obviously, I'm going to, you know, when I talk to her, when I eventually meet her, I'm just going to be like, oh, yeah, obviously, Brian should be doing way more yard work and just like not complaining about it. Like, right. come on. Sell me you know? out like that. I'm, I'm yeah, sure obviously. You I'm sure you will. But then she's going to like me uh, unless she listens to the first minute of, of this podcast and everything will be good. She's a she's a very occasional listener. I doubt she's going to pick up on this particular minute, but she might be oh. listening somewhere else in the house right now. I don't know. Now she's going to check me out, and I'm going to be busted. <laughs> all right. Uh, so you've been getting uh, all set up, making your house all pretty and everything. I was in Las Vegas since last Wednesday, and that was that was crazy, man. Did you get? Uh, a chance to check out any of the coverage, watch the beta draft, any of that nonsense? I, I did. I saw a lot of the coverage of the modern event and also was just like riveted by the beta draft. How could you not be? This is this is undis- undisputably one of the coolest things that's happened in a really long time for Magic. It was just like awesome to see all these old cards open. And even as a, a, a watcher from a distance, the excitement was palpable. Like you could tell the crowd was just super amped. I could tell that as well. I tried to take a quick nap before the beta draft and it turned into a sleep. Uh, have you watched the the VODs at least? Have, have you seen what went on? No, I haven't yet. I mean, I saw like pictures on Twitter and everything. And I also tried to buy a percent of Ben S and Juza, but they couldn't give me a final number. So uh, my my rooting interest was slightly negative in regards to that. So. Wow, you would have, you would have killed with a percent on Ben S. He did quite well for himself, as at least as far as opens go. I, I don't mean I don't know how your percentages worked if they were only for prizes or also for the cards acquired. But oh, it was for everything. I wanted to do it for everything, and like people were doing equity calculations, and people were basically deciding it was between sixty to seventy five dollars, and like I was all about that. You know, like I, I definitely would have just shipped someone seventy five bucks just to have like a rooting interest. You know, that was per percentage point. Yeah. Hmm. That's really interesting. I would love to see how those calculations panned out. I'm not questioning them. I mean, that requires a lot of work that I'm not going to do right now, but uh, it, it's really interesting to me that that's the number that you uh, you came up with in the end. No, it was like a beta pack is worth like, I don't know, 1500 to 2K, something like that. And then it was like, all right, the total prize is like 
15 to 18 grand and they're like slightly better than an eighth to actually win it and all of that nonsense. So I don't know, man, you'd have to ask them. I'm not a mathematician. Nor am I, but uh, regardless, it was just something awesome to to see happen. And, you know, maybe it's never going to happen again. I, I, I don't know. It's hard to say how many more beta drafts there's actually going to be. There can't be that much product out there. Although I always wonder if someday someone's going to like happen upon this crazy vault just absolutely filled with this old school product. But but even then, it's like you can't really make a dent in the print run. The print run was small. We know it was very small. There's never going to be that much more beta floating around. So really cool to see this one time. Yeah, I know they're doing a draft at Gen Con, but I think that's the last one announced. Okay, might be the last one ever. Who knows? Yep. So uh, aside from cool things like beta drafts, uh, there was a modern Grand Prix and a limited Grand Prix. I was all excited to play limited, man. Let me tell you, uh, I have really been enjoying Dominaria, not just because of like win percentage or anything like that, but just because like, you know, the cards are sweet, the decks are sweet, the games are sweet. I don't know. I, I guess I reluctantly signed up to play Modern, and I tested a decent amount on Moto leading up to it, and I brought a few different decks with me, and I was spell-slinging and everything. And let me let me tell you that Bant Eldrazi is not very good. <laughs> okay, I'm, gl- I'm glad you got to that conclusion before the tournament started. Uh, I was a little skeptical when you said it, but I was willing to give you the benefit of the doubt and let you sort it out. Why is it not good? Just give us a, a quick rundown. We don't have to go super in-depth on Bant Eldrazi. Oh, I don't know. My my draws were just really bad. Like, normally when I spell sling, it's like, you know, people come up with, like, casual decks or, like, aggressive decks or combo decks. Like, they're generally, like, very linear, right? And then I, t- I tend to win a lot of my spell slinging games. And Bantel Drawsy, I just was, like, you know, two and eight or something. So, <laughs> yeah. Not a, not a good precedent. It just didn't feel good. And like I, I had played uh, San Antonio, the team Grand Prix with Bantel Drawsy, and I remember being like kind of impressed with the deck. So it's like that sort of stayed with me. And I was like, oh, I'll try it again. Like I feel like it could be good and maybe I'll have like a better shot against Tron than what I would normally play and blah, blah, blah. But uh, turns out the modern decks have gotten like a lot better and Bantel Drawsy has gotten basically zero cards. So. There's a lot of times in modern where like a deck just doesn't keep up with the arms race, right? All these other decks are getting new tools, new players come to the metagame, and a deck just kind of stands pat for a little bit too long, and the metagame just passes it by. Blue Eyetron. Yeah, exactly. Same same thing. Not that that deck was ever particularly great or anything, but you know, it, it hasn't gotten any better. You know, remand on the draw as like... Basically, your first piece of interaction is just bad. Not going to hold up these days, especially when we get to some uh, some later metagames that we're going to talk about after we do the Vegas stuff. Yeah, so to the surprise of probably no one, I played Mardu Pyromancer. Reed Duke was actually converted over to the archetype. Uh, I'm not sure exactly what prompted him to abandon Jund or Abzan or whatever his you know flavor of green-black was. But he was messaging me about Mardu and like sent me basically his final list and was asking for thoughts and we talked about stuff. And uh, at the end, I just went with effectively his main deck, which contained two Liliana the Veil and no copies of Metamorphose. And I missed the Metamorphoses dearly throughout the entire tournament. Like I cast a lot of Revelers for five and it was it was not great. So it was it a, it was a basis of, you know, fueling your revelers. Was it mana troubles as well? Or is it just, you know, you needed this little piece of value to really push your deck over the edge? No, the mana is good. It's not like Mana Morphos really fixes your mana. Like there, there are certainly games 
against aggressive decks where you don't want to aggressively fetch the Sacred Foundry, where maybe it allows you to hard cast on Lingering Souls or something. But it's mostly just there to make your Revelers cheaper and be like a, a zero mana cantrip and something that fills your right. graveyard and everything. But uh, Reed did not like the liability against Thalia, which is understandable, but Humans is not that large a percentage of the format. Throughout the Grand Prix, I think I played against it twice. So overall, that's that, that shouldn't be like a huge deal, you know? Also a matchup that I, I think you would say is at least slightly slanted in your favor. I mean, part of the reason for playing Mardu Pyromancer is because you want to take on the Humans matchup as much as possible. Is that fair to say? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, the games are close and everything, and you can right. certainly lose. But for the most part, yeah, you're a reasonable favorite. Okay, so don't cut your metamorphoses is the, is the takeaway here. How'd your day go? I uh, started 7-0. Good start. And came down to match against Burn for the last one. And in game one, I had sort of a slow start, but got to put my opponent under a blood moon, and that blanked one of his draw steps when he drew a lightning helix that he couldn't cast. And then I finally started to turn the corner, and it came down to me at three life versus the top of his deck. And guess what happened? I lost. Yeah, we know how that story ends virtually every time. Yep. So then game two, I won. Uh, maneuvered myself in a position where I got a Campbell into play, and that basically locked it up. And then game three, I don't know. Like, I was definitely off my game this weekend, at least a little bit. Like, I was not seeing everything as clearly as I normally would, and... Uh, in this game three, maybe because it was like, you know, 10, 30 p.m. and I was exhausted. But like I just looked at my opener with like lands and spells and I was like, yeah, keep. And then I'm just like, oh, wait, no, I'm supposed to mulligan like specifically for 12 cards. Like this hand is definitely going to be really bad. And it, it was like Inquisition, two Pyromancers, two Revelers or something. Or maybe it was like a looting instead of a Pyromancer. But either way, like a Swiss Spear stayed in play for like five turns and... If I drew like a brutality at any point, I think I would have been all right. But, you know, so it goes. What are, what are the 12 cards you're mulliganing to in the matchup? Uh, when I'm on the draw specifically, it is push, bolt, brutality, and maybe Campbell. Although I think that that is also a little bit too slow unless I have like specifically Inquisition into two drop removal. Right. Yeah, that's what I was expecting your answer to be. Makes sense. You just, I mean, if they stick a one drop and you do nothing about it for multiple turns, you will lose the game every time. I mean, I, I played a Pyromancer, but that doesn't do it, you know? No, not enough. Not enough in that spot. So 7-1. Uh, 7-1 goes into 10-1, and one, and I'm feeling pretty good. And then uh, I'm also, like, kind of glancing at the top tables and stuff, and I'm just like, yeah, like, suck it, Tron players. Like, none of you are up here, right? So then, obviously, I end up playing against Tron, and I had dodged Tron all day up until that point. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, man, I'm like looking around. I'm seeing like all these human decks. I'm just like stupid Tron, man. Tron's always going to get me. And I end up making a pretty big mistake in game one that that's like not super obvious where I stick a blood moon and I get to kill an O-Stone with a Kolagon's command. So now my blood moon's in play and my opponent has like a random card. And I pass the turn and... Some, something happened where I was just like, oh, like maybe I'll just like get his last card with my Kolagon's command or whatever. He had five lands. So yeah, I didn't pass the turn. I think I like K commanded and like just returned something irrelevant, basically. Mm-hmm. Whereas if I save K command for any O-Stone that my opponent draws, my Blood Moon is going to be in play for like a vast majority of the game because this is game one and they don't have a lot of ways to remove it, right? Right. 
So I should have just saved the K command as protection for my blood moon and just continued playing the game. And sure enough, he drew an O stone and then killed my blood moon and then killed me. That didn't feel great because I felt like I was in a pretty favorable position. And then obviously I lost game two in not very close fashion. So, uh, so far the two matches I've lost have been my fault more or less. Well, I, I mean, that's, that's a tough spot to be in, but I guess you want to have, you want to have control over your destiny, right? It, it's good to say, well, it was just, wasn't my day. At least you had the chance to make the proper plays and, and come out with a better record. Can't always do it, unfortunately. No, I mean, if at the end of the day, I was like, I think I played great and I still lost like, okay, whatever, you know, like maybe there were some things I could have done differently in deck building and preparation and all that sort of stuff. But like in these instances, when you do lose and there are things that you do mechanically that are poor, it's like, well, you know, some amount of this is on me, right? Right. I'm going to fast forward a little bit just because I want to ask this question and it kind of spoils the end of your tournament. But basically the result you get in this tournament locks you for everything you need and you end up in a good spot overall. Do you think the fact that you didn't need to top eight this tournament, like you needed a solid finish and it was going to do the job for you, did that do anything as far as, you know, lessening the amount of mental acuity you brought to the table? Or was it just a, you had been traveling for six weeks and you were tired and worn out and just didn't have your A game on that day? No, honestly, I think I was just tired. Like I didn't even think about the world's implications until after the fact. Okay. Like okay. It, it was, it was completely out of sight, out of mind. And I'm, I'm still like a point short too. So like any sort of like top eight or additional point or anything like would have helped. Oh, it would have mattered. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm never just going to be like, oh, I'm locked because you never know if you're locked or not. So sure. Sure. The round after I lose to Tron, I play against Green White Company on a time walk match. And I think they covered game two and I won game one. Game two came down to me having ensnaring bridge, me thought seizing my opponent's engineered explosives after they stuck a noble hierarch and then them needing or no maybe they didn't have a noble hierarch but they had a company with a hierarch on top right okay so i thought seize their explosives he casts company in response or something gets the noble i take explosives and then he like cracks some fetch lands and finds an explosives kills my bridge and kills me so i didn't catch this game I only caught the chat after the game. So I'm, I may be relaying some of the worst information in the history of the world right now, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Someone in the chat suggested that because the explosives would have had to have been set for three to, I think, remove a blood, remove the ensnaring bridge. It would have had to been set for three and it would have kind of devastated his board and maybe given you time to draw back into the game. Was that true or are they just misevaluating the situation on board? Um, I mean, there was, there was other stuff going on. I like my opponent did have two trackers, right? Okay. Uh, I think this was this game or it was like a knight or something. Um, I think I think it was a knight, but, it but may I, have been a I believe well. I believe he also accompanied into a two drop, like a voice or an ooze or something along those lines. Like I, I was also like just worried about time and the fact that like Fair I enough. have I have no hand, like my Liliana's gonna die, and then I have two tokens and like basically nothing going on versus like they kind of have the world's fair still. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right. It's like I only have one snaring bridge in my deck, so it's not like I'm live to draw into one of those. Yeah, I, I wish I had more information to kind of play devil's advocate and push you on any of these points. But honestly, I only caught the very end of the match, and I'm not exactly sure what transpired. So I figured I'd ask you to bring a little clarity to the situation. No, that's legit. I mean this this is another one of those positions where I even feel like in that scenario, I think maybe I could have done something differently, but I don't remember exactly what. But I do know that in game three which I believe they did not show, at least that's what I was told. Right, uh, game three. 
Yeah, like some of some of my sideboarding like caught up with me, and after the fact, like now I know how to sideboard against that matchup a little bit better. Where I brought in like all these Nile spell bombs, and I thought that like you know their deck is like mostly bulletproof, but if I have like Nile spell bomb plus brutality, like brutality is already good against them, and if I have that combo, I can kill a knight and yada yada yada. You know, mm-hmm. uh, realistically, I think I should have had like fewer spell bombs and more lightning bolts, and I just ended up like going through a bunch of cards and, like, not finding enough interaction. Like, game three started with me on the draw, or no, on the play, being able to, like, Liliana the Veil his Knight of the Reliquary. Okay, that sounds like a decent spot to be in. Right. At that point, I thought the game was over, you know? And then the game went on for many more turns. My opponent established two tireless trackers, and then it just, like, I was, like, drawing a bunch of cards and everything, but... I don't know, they just buried me, you know, and just at no point could I like actually remove those trackers, which was like, I, I think just like a huge mistake in my understanding of what was going to happen in those games. So again, another thing that's on me. It's really funny because as someone who doesn't have a wealth of experience with Mardu Pyromancer, I've played it a bit, um, but you know, certainly not the level of expertise you would bring to the table. Never for a second would it cross my mind to cut lightning bolt in that matchup. So it's funny that you're like higher level understanding and having this completely different game plan than I would have had as a more novice Mardu Pyromancer player actually may have brought you down a more dangerous path. You know, one of those like uh, overthinking type situations. Well, the, the things that you can bolt are like birds, elves, and like trackers if they're small, but basically like nothing else past that. It's like, do you want to bolt a voice? Like an ooze is potentially going to get bigger. And then it's like Corsair and Knight of the Reliquary, which is presumably giant. And it's just like Bolt doesn't have like a lot of really good targets. And I've played games against those decks where like they, they kind of build their deck to be insular against Lightning Bolt. Although like Tireless Tracker just kind of like dirties it up a little bit mm-hmm. to the point where I think I should have kept some in. But it was like, well, OK, the small stuff I can kill with Brutality and then everything else I'll have like Terminates and Liliana's for, you know. Yeah, I guess I, my instinct, again, from a much less experienced place would just be like the tempo advantage of killing bird hierarch was worth enough to still have bolts in my deck. And maybe if I snipe one of those other creatures, it's just, you know, all added value from there. Maybe it goes to the dome and I end the game that way. I don't know. I guess it takes a level of, of understanding and discipline that I don't possess with the deck to be able to cut your lightning bolts against the green-white creature deck. Um, I, I do see your point, though. There's a lot of large creatures in the deck that lightning bolt doesn't necessarily pick off, but the small ones seem so important to me that my instinct would not have been to board out my lightning bolts. Sure, but like you have brutality also to cover those, and you want brutality against Company. their yeah their companies and like path and stuff, so you can actually stick a rebeler and start clocking them. But yep, no, I see how you, I see how you got there. You're certainly you're you're laying out an argument for why you did things the way you did. So just not where I would have gone. I mean, it's it's interesting level of understanding. Word. So after that, uh, kind of, kind of disheartened about being ten and one, and then ten and three. But I, I rallied back, finished twelve and three, got my three pro points. I, I think I'm soft locked for worlds unless something crazy happens, and like basically everyone around me picks up ten pro points or whatever. Also, in the last round, I two o Tron, which felt good. Oh, that has to feel good. Anything interesting in the games, or are we just just running like like the sun? How does the sun? I know that it was just like a lot of back and forth. Like I would get Ugand or I would get Karned and then I would remove it. And then like I'd get O-Stoned and, you know, just like things kept going along those lines. And I just like kept playing through it basically. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I've lost I've lost a pyromancer before. It definitely happens on the Tron side of things. Sometimes just you don't have the right answers at the right time. There are little annoying cards here and there, like Blood Moon, which is really nothing more than an annoyance, but it is an annoyance nonetheless. Um, they add up and and you know they're able to get ahead and you don't quite catch up in time. Yeah, and that's that's basically exactly what happened. I was just fortunate that that happened twice in the same match. So yep. 12 and 3, not gonna complain. Ooh, also at one point I went over to build my sealed deck when I was 10 and one and my sealed deck was, was like pretty good, but I wasn't about to drop when I was 10 and one. So yeah. How would it have to be like a nine out of 10 at 10 and one, 10 out of 10. Is there any circumstance under which you drop at 10 one? Well at 10 and one, I still get a pro point. Okay. So, so there is some consideration, right? Like you have to think about it. If it was like a nine, I I may have dropped, but it was not a nine. It was like a seven. So that's interesting. We're going to have to, I, I would love to see the theoretical deck that would have pulled you out of 10 and one. And do you know the uproar you would have caused if you had dropped the tournament at 10 and one? Yeah. And then I like five, three, the limited GP. Right. And I was like, oh, right. damn it. Looking real smart. Oh yeah. But yeah. And then I had just like Sunday to kind of like bum around and rest and everything. And obviously throughout all of this, there's like good chats with a lot of people. I met a lot of fans of the podcast, which is always nice. And had some good dinners with folks and everything. So the weekend was good. It was just, I was exhausted. And then like Sunday night rolled around and I was like, I need a nap. And then I slept for eight hours. So, yeah, this was a tough event to miss. I'm sure it was great. The Vegas GPs are always, you know, a, a good confluence of a lot of people who wouldn't normally attend the GP and you get to see them uh, for the first time in a while. So unfortunately I will be going to Vegas this weekend. My timing is not great, but that's just how life works out sometimes. No, it is great because you're, you're doing like a bachelor party, right? Yeah. Yeah. It'll be fun, but I I love magic. If you gave me the choice between bachelor party and GP Vegas, I would probably choose GP Vegas, if not for the relationships uh, at issue in the bachelor party. So yeah, of course, but say the bachelor party was during GP Vegas, right? Like I feel like you would just try and ditch out on the bachelor party to go play one of the GPs. And that's oh, not good. A hundred percent. I would have, and they would, they would have caught me. They would have known. So it's probably good that that temptation didn't come up. Yeah, of course. So, you know, you do you. Yep. So we should probably swirl back around to the, the rest of the GP. Uh, obviously you did not make top eight, but Matt Nass did again. And he won the entire GP again with his Carrot Clan Ironworks deck. I mean, this string of tournaments is one of the most dominant performances I can ever recall. This is just absolutely bonkers. His mastery with the deck, his understanding of the deck, his work advancing the archetype. This is like a monumental achievement. Don't you agree? Yeah, of course. Like modern is one of the most difficult formats to actually get an edge in because like everyone's decks are so good, right? So what can you possibly do outside of find some broken interaction that people aren't ready for? And I guess that's kind of where we are with KCI. We're like, you know, the deck can kill on turn two, turn three is very resilient. It has a lot of like good insulation against random things. And yeah, man, has been crushing people. Ely Cassis made the top eight. Shaheen had a deep run. Like people who understand this deck have been doing quite well with it to the point where I'm just like, kind of on the outside looking in, I'm just like, yeah, maybe I should be doing that. But based on recent events like the Magic Online PTQ, I feel like things are about to change. Yeah, it's it's funny that the PTQ, which happened the day later, seemingly had adjusted. Uh, also keep in mind, there are some operations issues with KCI on Moto. It, it takes forever. So it's one of those things like back when Malaria combo was dominant, 
in real life, it didn't really show up on, on Moto all that much because you couldn't gain infinite life. It took too long to do the loop. There's a little bit of that with KCI. It's not as drastic as it was with that combo um, or something like Project X if you want to go way back in the day. But there's certainly some barriers to operation there that could be holding it down a little bit in the Moto metagame. Yeah, for sure. But I mean, if you look at this modern PTQ, like it is, it is just crazy. Like even if KCI were basically untouched, right. And you could play it without any of the issues. It's like this, this metagame looks super hostile towards it. So like first place we have my, my boy riser, big fan of, of this person, uh, Japanese player has a pro tour top eight, Love Shadowverse, post about Shadowverse all the time. So that's like mainly why I follow him. But he also builds like really sweet decks. And he, just, he won the PTQ with Goblins. I've seen decks like this floating around. I actually played a deck that looked very similar to this at GP Toronto and somehow beat it with Tron. Don't ask me how. But this particular build, I love that he is devastating summons. What an awesome card that I haven't seen in so long. Uh, and, you know, this deck is kind of like, it's as broken as a deck with a bunch of one-drop goblins can ever be. There's certainly some turn three kills here. I don't think there's a turn two. That would really surprise me. But A lot of burning tree emissaries with like a yeah. Foundry Street Denizen. Yeah, yeah, it's probably, it's probably theoretically po- possible, but you know, supremely unlikely. However, there's a lot of turn threes present. Uh, and, and certainly by turn four, if you haven't done something, the game's over and you're dead. Denizen, four emissary, reckless bushwhackers, a clean 20. Okay, there you go. So uh, that's pretty unlikely, but it does exist. That's the point. And there's a lot of power here. If you're not prepared for a deck like this, you have virtually no chance against this strategy. There's, there's several decks that just will completely fold to this archetype. Among them, Probably KCI, I'm guessing. I just can't see them, especially post-board. You get four smashed to smithereens. I don't know how effective Damping Sphere actually is there, but it exists, and you can consider that as well. And let's not miss our boy Goblin Chain Whirler hanging out in the sideboard here of a modern PTQ uh, winning deck. So interesting to see that card cross over to modern, even if it's a very limited uh, context. Nine cards from Dominaria in the sideboard. Yeah, that's crazy. That's that's a huge amount of penetration into the modern format. And I don't think it's the cards we would expect. And especially maybe Damping Sphere, you would expect to some extent. But Chain Whirler and Flame of Kel, they're not ones that I thought would get a huge amount of run in the modern format. Well, I love Flame of Keld. I think it's great. Uh, start brewing up those Flame of Keld standard decks then. Let's see them. I, I mean, they exist already. Make them better. That's your job. Bring, right. them to the, bring them to the top of the metagame. Well, other than the Dominaria cards in the sideboard, the newest card in the deck is Fanatical Firebrand, which is like kind of replaceable, you know, like obviously haste is a big deal, but for the most part, like this shell has been around. And I think Riser's main innovation is like the four Grim Lava Mancers and the 12 Fetch Lands. And also just being like super low to the ground and not playing like no, no Mog War Marshal, no Goblin Chieftain, anything like that. Like he's, he's not messing around. He's just like super cold to Chalice on one, does not care. Yeah, it takes a lot of bravery to play a deck like this. Um, you know, there are some things that are just going to absolutely cold you, and he's willing to live with that. And obviously, it served him very, very well in this instance. Got him back on the Pro Tour, where I'm sure he'll bring some other deck that you'll absolutely fanboy out over. We should just start like a, a Riser fan club podcast. We'll just talk about whatever he's doing on a week to week basis. And that think, would be really creepy be, and awesome. Yeah, it would be and right up the rally. Yeah, dude, we get to like episode 50 before he even knows that it exists. <laughs> that would be too good. Was that like the Truman Show or whatever? Sure. Yeah, he doesn't even know he's being watched all the time by the game podcast. So in second place and seventh place, 
two spots in this top eight. Uh, Green Black Infect, which Edgar, I'm going to butcher his last name because I always do, Magal Hayes. Your guess is as good as mine, but we know who we're talking about. Edgar, Edgar, the amulet dude. Uh, yes. He won He won a face-to-face open with Green Black Infect, and these lists are like a little bit different than his, but for, for the most part, like these decks are now showing up in, in Modern, and they're doing quite well. Yeah, and this is not a new archetype. I mean, essentially, these deck lists have been around forever. Go back to Chris Fennell playing this archetype a long time ago and, and finding some success with it, I remember. So... You know, nothing super new, not a lot of new cards floating around, but why do you think it's the time for green-black as opposed to more traditional blue-green or, you know, the the blue-green splash-black Infect decks that we've seen in the past? Gitaxian Probe got banned. Mm-hmm. Fatal Push is great. And protection from white is good against humans. But I also think, like, pro-red and pro-white, like, how the hell do I kill this with Mardu? Like, I, I need exactly Liliana. Phyrexian Crusader is a hell of a card. Um, You know, three is a lot in the modern context, but when Crusader hits the table, you feel it right away. There's very little a lot of decks in the format can do to beat this card. Casting it accelerated with Birds of Paradise and Noble Hierarch sometimes, I I bet there's just games that he ends on turn three where opponents have no chance whatsoever to interact. Yeah, I mean, like you can Fatal Push it too, I guess, but like, yeah, it's kind of, it's very close to untouchable. Especially when you, you know, kind of the threads you would have pulled at going into this weekend of modern play would be Jeskai's on the rise. By the way, that didn't pan out whatsoever. You would think that KCI is something to be targeting. In in all these instances, you can see why these decks were able to find success and, and were really wise choices for this PTQ. Yeah, Jeskai, Jeskai had a week. Yep, that's it. And Maybe two <laughs> and weeks where it was good. Yep, and yeah. now it's like, all right, Tron is crushing people. Okay, now I guess we're in turn three land again. Yeah, it happened that quickly because we have to go back to the the top eight and the top 16, really, of GP Vegas just for a second because I got to check in with all my, my Tron homies out there. In fact, so one of the top eight players played exactly the list I proposed the last time we talked about Tron. Not sure if uh, Max Mick is a listener or not, but this this is the deck list we talked about last time I made us go off on a Tron tangent, uh, and he was rewarded with the top eight. There's a second copy of Tron in the top eight and a bunch of copies in the top 16. So exactly the response you would have predicted to a lot of Jeskai floating around. Tons of people pick up Tron, do very, very well with it. And then by the time we get to the Moto PTQ, nope, you can't Tron anymore because you're dead on turn three. So that's how quickly things moved here. Max Mick is the person who I blew it against in the Swiss. When I was telling Oh, okay. Well, he was, did he mention that he was a listener of the podcast? Uh, I don't recall. Okay. I, I believe, I believe that he did not, he did not mention it. But. Beckstrom also went 13 and two with KCI, who's like Matt Nass light when it comes to like these weirdo combo decks, like the elves decks and everything. Yep. They work together. They, I'm sure they prepared for this tournament together. Uh, and, you know, he's, he's also put up a series of very respectable finishes. Obviously not on the same level as Matt Nass, but nobody on the planet is on the same level as Matt Nass. So nothing to be ashamed of there. They're, they're doing some very dominant work with this archetype. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I don't know how long it's going to last. I mean, I can't imagine that Infect is a good matchup. No, I can't either. And the deck does seem targetable to me. I think it has now gotten to the point where you'd be pretty foolish not to respect it. I guess what has to happen is it needs to get that widespread adaptation. And, you know, you just said, 
well, is it time for me to pick up this deck? I think a lot of people are having that thought right now. And you'd be kind of foolish not to be having those thoughts as a professional magic player when you see this kind of runaway success. It's your duty to pay attention to the metagame and you go, well, if, if Matt's killing it, you know, not to take anything away from Matt because we know he's a great combo player, but everyone else is thinking, well, if he can train himself to play this deck this well, maybe I can too. And I think you're going to see this deck in a lot more hands in the weeks going forward. And that means it's time to adapt. And maybe that's already happening as far as these PTQ results go. Yeah, this is the exact scenario where I'm like, well, you know, I'm going to be getting in on this like a little too late. So I'm just not even going to bother. Not even bother. Yeah, I was, I was thinking the same exact thing. I, like the, the format will adapt and then I'll just be walking into a minefield. Yeah, Modern has a lot of that where you really have to pick your spots very carefully. You know, if you're asking what I would do right now in regards to KCI, I'm not going to pick it up. I'm going to have a plan for it. I'm going to make sure my my sideboards are, you know, keeping it in mind and making sure I have an appropriate number of cards which affect the matchup. And that's going to be my response. Yeah, I agree with that. And I don't know, maybe it's time for me to actually learn how to play Infect. Like I've I've dabbled before and like done kind of well on Magic Online, but I just feel stupid and have that looming thought that I'm missing a bunch of stuff, you know? Do you think it's a deck that doesn't particularly favor your play style? Eh, I don't know. It's hard to say. Like, I, I feel like it's kind of similar to uh, like old school Dark Depths, where it's like, I don't even know how I ever decided like when to go for the combo against anyone. I just like remember playing it and it being great. You just listen to your heart. That's all it is. You yeah, look maybe. inside yourself and you go, it's go time. So I'm going through these uh, top 32 deck lists. We have... Zach Elsick in 21st, Shaheen in 26th. Zach also got second at the Invitational with Ironworks, and he lost to Infect in the finals. So, I mean, these these things are happening. They are real. Like, it is not just, like, one isolated Moto PTQ incident, you know? Like, Aaron Barrage played 10 total turns in the top eight of the Invitational. Like, Infect is great. Yeah, yeah. The the format is adapting right in front of our eyes. And it's, it's cool to see. I hope that... People don't start saying the B word around KCI. It, please don't. It's it's not a discussion you need to have. Just adapt. There's already decks finding success against KCI. There's already metagames finding success against KCI. So don't go down that road. It's just not a productive discussion. I get the people who are like, Ancient Stirrings is too good, but a lot of these cards are too good. It's modern. They're supposed to be very powerful cards present, uh, and you can find ways to beat all of them if you try hard enough. You can, but I mean, let's be honest, man. Like, looting is too good, stirrings is too good, mox opal is too good. Sure, but is it a better format if you remove those three cards? That I don't know, but like, these things are clearly on par with cards that are ba- like preordain. Come on. Oh, I, I get it. I get it. And I think a lot of the modern ban list doesn't make any sense in that regard. Like, there's things there that just, if they came off, would see zero play. They wouldn't negatively affect the format. And there's things present in the format which are way more powerful. But it's kind of doing this weird thing where it's trying to, I guess, cultivate a specific metagame. And it's never going to be a perfect reflection of the power level of these cards. And it's not supposed to be. It's supposed to be encouraging a certain style of play and basically enjoyment for as many people as possible. Now, enjoyment of magic means a lot of different things. So that's a really, really difficult goal to hit on. But on the whole, I I think as long as metagames continue to adapt, you want to kind of stay away and 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 be more hands-off. And in fact, I would probably respond with some more unbannings just because hits to consumer confidence aren't good. Mox Opals are expensive. Oh, of course. 
I mean, I, I don't think these cars are going to get banned anytime soon. Right. But you're just arguing on power level. They're, they're good enough to be banned. Well, power level and like what they do to the format, like Faithless Looting outside of Marty Pyromancer is not doing anything positive for the format. It's like fueling Dredge and Gorio's Vengeance and Hollow One and like all these nonsense decks. Uh, uh, ben Friedman played a pretty fair Faithless Looting this week, I believe. Uh, he had two copies of Faithless Looting in his Grixis Shadow deck. Yeah, and uh, I don't I don't think that that's correct, but... Okay. So he made he made a mistake and you're willing to write that off. But regardless, there are people who believe that card is playable in fair context. And we know it's playable in something like Mardu Pyromancer. It is playable in fair context. Absolutely. I mean, like looting lingering souls. Sure. Like that is fine. But for the most part, people are trying to push the limits and do unfair things. And that is mostly what looting promotes. Right. It's just like, where do you draw the line? You know, it's, it's so hard to find a spot. Like, I actually think that the format would probably stay interesting for a pretty long period of time if you just unbanned everything besides probably Eye of Ugin, which is the only card I found problematic in no banless modern. And that's not even a reaction to what happened like in the tournament, which was dominated by Eldrazi. It's just like there's no way that card leads to like diverse metagames. There's too many flavors of Eldrazi. Every creature deck has to be Eldrazi if Eye of Ugin is present, basically. But if you unban everything else, there's probably an interesting metagame there. I'm not saying it's ever going to happen or it should happen, but it just goes to show that things can correct for themselves when the, the power level of these cards is that high. You just let things rotate. I mean, if there's a dominant turn 3.5 combo deck, then the glass cannon turn three combo deck can step up and take control. And then something will prey on that and we'll just keep going around and around in circles. Right. But in the meantime, are we enjoying the, the various things that these cards are doing? I think the answer is still yes. I mean, people still seem to love modern. I, I think it's probably in an okay-ish place. I mean, I don't know. It's always hard to say when a deck like KCI has seen a lot of success because a lot of people hate playing against that style of deck. But you go look at this other PTQ and, and people got to cast Frogmite again. When was the last time you saw people casting Frogmite successfully? It's been a very long time. SBIRU has played the same affinity deck for like an actual decade. He's just not changing his cards. He refuses to consider anything new. They, they have only recently removed the scale of Chiscorias from their deck. That's too funny. They're just like, here's my list. Let's see what you got. Still mirror enforcers floating around. Nothing has changed. Three contested war zone. Nobody else plays an affinity deck that looks like this. 12 land. 12. Just no crazy. colors. Just crazy. A little bit of red. Wow. True sicko. Almost rewarded with a Pro Tour invite for their troubles. Almost. Not quite there, Chalice of the Void Affinity. <laughs> so if if I were playing a modern event, I might play a green-black infect. Uh, seems like a great choice right now. Praise on the very clear top dog after this week and maybe the second in command of Tron, at least in, in my view. It had an extremely dominant performance at the GP, a huge percentage of the top 16. Black-green infect punishes both of those decks dramatically. Do you think there'll be some goblins floating around? Will people pick up Riser's deck? I I don't know. I doubt it. Like maybe the the sort of zoo person would want to do this, but like zoo typically had more interaction. I guess this is like more of an analog to burn than anything. Yeah, I would keep in mind that it's fairly budget friendly, which means if you're playing like smaller local tournaments, you might see a lot of this turn this uh, deck going forward. Just a little something to keep in mind. You might want to be prepared and, and have a plan for those goblins going forward. Well, budget-friendly-ish, right? There's still 12 fetches and 
that's about it, right? I mean, is Goblin Guide still expensive? I think it's been reprinted enough that it's come down, right? Let me let me look at this. The price is six hundred. That's got to be mostly tied up in fetch lands. Although I think Legion Loyalist is also becoming an expensive card. Slowly. Yeah, Loyalist is ten. Goblin Guide is like a little over twenty. Lavamancers okay, so- are a chunk. Guide is more than I thought it was. Yeah, as far as modern modern goes, it's still on the budget friendlier side. Maybe not as widespread adoption as I would have first expected, though. Having heard that, yeah, I mean, most of these cards you can probably pick up pretty cheap, or like you have them already, like Lightning Bolt. You don't have to pay twelve dollars for Lightning Bolts. Uh, my jaw literally just dropped. I can't believe Lightning Bolt is a twelve dollar card. <laughs> no, it's, it's, tw- it's, it's twelve for the playset. Oh, okay, okay, that makes more sense. Thank you. Yeah, they're only three bucks. No big I was about deal. to just stop the podcast and run and start sorting through my boxes and find <laughs> lightning bolts as I could. I mean, they're three dollars. You should still probably do that. Maybe I probably it's not should. I probably should, Jerry, but I won't. And we know that. Word. Yeah. Oh, maybe when I come visit you, I'll just sort your cards. I do like yeah. sorting cards. Oh, hey, have at it. Tight. Well, uh, other big news: we have a lot of core set previews. Yeah, getting some good ones now. The the really powerful cards are starting to trickle out. All right, let's let's each pick a favorite. You ready? Okay, I've got mine. All right, I gotta gotta think a little bit here. Do you want like favorite on power level or favorite on like you're gonna be like, dude, what the hell is wrong with you? Uh, I would prefer the dude, what the hell is wrong with you choice. All right, I got it. Fountain of Renewal. Well, now I'm going to have to find which card Fountain of Renewal is. Why don't you Why don't you read it and save me the trouble? Uh, a single colorless or a single generic mana for an artifact. At the beginning of your upkeep, you gain one life. Three, sacrifice Fountain of Renewal, draw a card. That is a very basic card. What has you so excited about the Fountain of Renewal? Are you a believer in these life gain decks? Because there's some other life gain effects I see floating around this set. Do you think maybe Fountain of Renewal is going to be enabling some powerful strategies? Dude, that was the first deck I built. was life gain. Mm -hmm. So, no, there's... uh, My first thought was Improvise. Yep, yep. Nice, cheap artifact. And there's also a blue nerd ape in this set and a three mana creature and soul artifact. So I'm like, all right, well, artifact beatdowns, let's go. But then they keep previewing like a Johnny's Pride Mate, Resplendent Angel, a Johnny's obviously pretty tight. And, you know, I, I had to order some Crested Sunmares, man. I just did. Oh, is this is this a hot financial spec you just dropped on everyone? I don't know. I think I think the the boat may have been missed on this. I checked a date and it went from like a penny to a ticket on Moto. Yeah, people are people are ready to get their life gain cards. But you're right, there's a lot of different stuff going on with life gain here. Uh Johnny's Pride Mate is, you know, modern playable card. I don't know if I'm saying that with a straight face or not, but it does see some play in modern. Uh and, and certainly in the right context, these decks can be very, very powerful. The Angel is is particularly strong just on its face, I think. I don't I don't know if it's gonna see a ton of play. It has a lot of contextual questions to answer, but definitely a powerful ability that Goes really well with stuff like Shalai. And I'm speaking right now of Resplendent Angel, which is one colorless, white, white, 3 3 flyer. At the beginning of each end step, if you gained five or more life this turn, create a 4 4 white angel token with flying and vigilance. And for three colorless and three white, until end of turn, Resplendent Angel gains plus two, plus two, and gains lifelink. For a 3 3. Yeah. Yeah. Shalai, Shalai with this is nice. Uh, Shalai Lyra is nice. Uh, we have like some horse tribal going on. So your mm-hmm. horse is indestructible. I mean, I think this deck is probably just going to be awful, but whatever. It sounds really cool. Imagine if it works. All right. So why don't you tell me your, your power level choice right now? Uh, the card I most want to try and explore is just 
plain old boring Nicol Bolas, I guess. But Dark Dweller Oracle is like the second bad card I like. And that's the goblin sacrifice guy, right? Yeah, we haven't had a sacrifice outlet for a while. So this is this is one R two two, goblin shaman. One second creature exile the top card of your library. You may play that card this turn. Interesting that it doesn't say you may cast that card this turn. That's a pretty huge difference. You get a land drop if if you haven't made your land drop yet. So that's really nice to see. I mean, I don't know. This is. This feels powerful to me. I, I think this card could have some legs. Obviously, these type of cards are super dependent on the pieces surrounding them. So what kind of creatures are you sacrificing? Is there a doom traveler or something to that effect? Is there a payoff for having a lot of small, easily disposable creatures sitting around somewhere? You know, the format is going to be at its largest when we get Dark Dweller Oracle. That's both a blessing and a curse because there's a lot of things that decks like that have to contend with. But there's also a lot of pieces to the engine that they can look for. So Dark Dweller Oracle is going to be a card that I brew around a lot. I don't have anything super exciting planned right now, but I I agree it's piquing my interest as well. Yeah, I mean, what if you're just playing like Pia or Whirler Virtuoso or something, and it's like, I don't know, you just kind of get to go off if you want, or maybe Cryptolith Rite and a bunch of nonsense. Who knows? A lot of different avenues to explore, and I I agree. It's it's an exciting card in this context. Yeah, Nicol Bolas is, is... Pretty good, I think. Obviously, pigeonholing you into Grixis is not ideal, but Grixis has been playable before. And like four mana, four four flyer that ETB, like you ravenous rat them, is fine. And I think that this curving into Liliana Death Majesty is pretty nice because then you're getting like a mind rot and a planeswalker out of the deal if they happen to kill it, uh, unless it's like contempt or whatever. And then if you transform it, it's like, how are you going to lose? Yeah, transforming is basically game over. Uh, It does have some risk. I like that it happens at sorcery speed from a design perspective. I think that's really cool. A lot more counterplay than a card like this would typically hold. As far as my overall evaluation of Nicol Bolas, I would say I'm probably like lower than average as as far as this card goes. I mean, that's hard to kind of contextualize because obviously your average is going to be who you listen to. It seems like people are super stoked on this card, like it's the second coming. I think it's strong. I think it'll see play, but I'm not completely over the moon about the front side, and I worry a little bit about the risk on the back side, but it could be my fears are overblown. This has the look of a card that I'll play with at once, and I'll just be like, oh yeah, this card's the truth, and I was way off. So I I wouldn't be shocked if I was wrong about Nicol Bolas. The Elder Dragon I was kind of into a little bit more was Chromium. I really like when there's these mirror breakers for control matchups. And I think this one is an interesting one. I'll go ahead and read Chromium, the mutable. Uh, It's four colorless, Esper, white, blue, black. And Chromium has flash. It can't be countered. It's a 7-7 flyer. And you can discard a card until end of turn. Chromium, the mutable, becomes a human with base power and toughness. 1-1, loses all abilities and gains hexproof. It can't be blocked this turn. I think that's a really nice mirror breaker and kind of the card that it's so bad I'm blanking on his name right now. Nezahal really wanted to be and just never was due to the presence of Disallow. Um, Chromium fares a little bit better against those tests. And I, I, I like this card. I think it'll it'll play an important role in the format going forward. I mean, it, it does die to settle the wreckage. That is true. But you just put yourself in a position where that card won't be in your opponent's deck in post-board games. I mean, I'm, I'm seeing this as like, a control cards go to post board plan. Like I, I don't think it's the answer against control decks, 
except in mirrors. Do you know what I'm saying? Like you expect them not to have settle in that spot. But obviously as the metagame evolves and everyone knows you're bringing in Chromium, then you keep in your settle and the game becomes about something completely different. So it'll be interesting to see where on the spectrum we fall with Chromium. If it's going to be something that everyone picks up and has a plan for, or if the fact that everyone plans for it just completely eliminates it from the format. I think all these big dummy idiots just end up being worse than sideboarding like Siphoner or Bloodfast. Maybe, maybe that's the new approach to control games. You're just supposed to go small, let your little value creatures and enchantments take over the game as opposed to looking for these haymakers. I mean, Chromium has its issues. I do think that it's a slightly better Nezahal. It is a dragon for whatever that matters. It has flash. Like all of these things are fine, but it's like seven mana doesn't give you any value. Just, I don't know. I'm not about it. Yeah, it's not like it's to do a tool. Or, or to do a specific, it's a tool to do a specific task. It's it's not just a widely played card in the format. As far as that goes, Nicole Bolas has way more potential as just being a card to build around, uh, a card that decks are planning around using to its fullest. Chromium's just something cool that I like to have access to when I'm building decks, basically. Word. I mean, for all the people that are like, oh, you can just kill Nicole Bolas in response to the thing. And it's like, well, what if I just like hit you for four and then play other stuff? Right. Never you know? expose it. Yeah, and just, like, every turn I just keep doing this, right? As far as, like, what if they don't have removal? Like, think of how often, like, the Scarab God lives, right? And just runs away with the game. Like, this is kind of the same thing. It's just, like, if you untap with Nicol Bolas, you're pretty sure they don't have it, or their shields are down, or you duress them, or whatever. Like, you pay seven, transform it, you can minus four, get back another Nicol Bolas, or just, like, any other big thing, right? Like, it is going to be almost impossible to lose. I think like this. This is basically like Scarab God on crack. An amped up Scarab God. Wow, that's 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 a lot to live up to. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think it's going to be as like prevalent as Scarab God because of the mana cost. The, yeah, the the mana constraints and everything. But like you flip it, you just generate such an insane board position. This is true. I, it's a difficult planeswalker to deal with, that's for sure. You know, it's still incentivized, really, to keep our Vraska's Contempts around in this this new metagame, it looks like. I'll minus four my Nicol Bolas on my Liliana. I'll minus three my Liliana on my Nicol Bolas the Ravager. Good Please luck. don't. <laughs> Please don't. There's nothing I can do about that. That'll just be the end of the game. Yeah, you're dead. Yep. Well, that is a, a play pattern I hope that I'm executing over the coming months <laughs> and not falling victim to over and over. Yeah, and then un- until it gets to that point, you're just attacking them for four, and they already discarded a card. It's great. Sounds pretty good. So I'll give you my picks. I can give you my what the hell pick first. Um, it's a card I actually tweeted about today because I was so excited to see it in the set, and that is Root Snare. And Root Snare is one colorless green, prevent all combat damage that would be dealt this turn. I just needed one more fog for my time walk deck. Um, my, my Nexus of Fate deck to be sure that you could definitely turbo fog people, and you definitely can now. Nexus of Fate's going to be a standard playable card. There's no two ways about it. Find a way to get this card. I, I don't know what to tell you. It, it's going to see some play. And I realize that by like saying this, I'm having possibly some role in seeing this come to fruition. But whether I was here or not, this card would see some standard play. And, and some people are going to be very excited about building Nexus of Fate decks, and I'm one of them right now. I don't know, man. I'm skeptical. Like, obviously, the Bant Ramp decks have had, like, marginal success, and Teferi into Fog is quite nice, and, like, Teferi is your engine. If you're doing the Hour of Promise thing, you have Omniscience at the top end to let you just go ham with Nexus of Fate and everything, but, like, 
I feel like these decks are just pretty bad in a format that is like red aggression and duresses, you know? I actually think Mirari Conjecture is the better engine now than Teferi for what it's worth. You know, using that over and over with the blink of an eye effects and and looping in that way might be even more promising than doing something with Teferi. Uh, as far as into an aggressive red metagame, I guess it depends how many burn spells. Like that's always the crux of a deck like this is they're super vulnerable to any burn spells off the top because eventually your opponent will draw them all. Uh, as it stands right now, there's not a huge number of them. Obviously, the metagame can adapt around that, but this deck can adapt as well. I don't know. It's going to be my pet project for sure when the format starts. We'll have to see if it actually comes to any any meaningful impact on the metagame. Uh, as far as just a power level card, I think Ajani is quite good uh, as far as Planeswalkers go. The, the minus two is being slept on a little bit. <laughs> I don't know why people are like looking at the bad converted mana cost two creatures that you can maybe return and using that as a way to downplay a Johnny. Like you can return things like Glintsleeve, Siphoner and super powerful two, two CMC cards. So playing a Johnny minus in two right away, having a powerful creature in play, or maybe even a more defensive creature to protect a Johnny is going to be a very successful line. The plus one is underwhelming-ish. I guess I would say you really want to be an aggressive deck to take full advantage of it. Uh, but minus seven is pretty much game winning against a lot of decks, depending on how much Chain Whirler is floating around. And there's also a second Chain Whirler now. So yeah. um, maybe we should talk about Plague Mare a little bit. What do you think about Plague Mare? Well, back to it, Johnny. I think the plus one is good with Walking Melissa and the minus two is good with either of the Knights, specifically Knight of Malice. So, I mean, sure. a, a, a Johnny is good. I, I agree wholeheartedly. Plague Mare is just kind of whatever, like... Chain Whirler is a 3-3 first striker. This this is basically, this this reads to me like a card that you might sideboard. But if for whatever reason, like tokens ever did make a comeback, I mean, you could it's play. It's not. It, it's not. But yeah, if it ever did, anymore. if it ever did, you could play eight Chain Whirlers in your red-black deck if you wanted to. Yeah. I, I heard some people posit whether this card may be legacy playable. I'm not sure if I buy that. But it's possible. I mean, it's an answer to True Name Nemesis. There's a lot of decks which really live on the back of their 1-1s. I don't know. There's a lot of weird cards that pop up in Legacy to do very specific things. So you can see how Plague Mare has a, a, a little bit of a foothold as, as far as answers to things like Baleful Strix and True Name Nemesis go. Well, what's what's the the 2B2-3 minister? Like that had already seen some fringe play and then uh, Orzhov Pontiff, like... Right. You very rarely do the ghost thing, right? It's just like this is the one thing that actually minus one's their team. So now you have like kind of a budgety option for this if you don't want to splash. Sure. Yeah. And there's a lot of a lot of weirdo cards that see play just because of uh true name nemesis that are clean ed. Like things like Marsh Casualties is another one that you see a lot of. Um, oh, yeah. Holy Light, right? That's a from the dark. All non-white creatures get minus one, minus one. That's a card I've seen once in a while. So a lot of weird stuff happens in Legacy. I don't know if Plague Mare is going to get added to that list, but something to keep track of. Yep. Uh, what else we got here? We have we have a Mana War at Uncommon. Yeah, it's going to be important for Limited, I'm sure. I don't know if I'm going as far as this is a constructed card, but... We've we've written off Mana Wars before, and then Reflector Mage got banned. So Reflector Mage, this is not, but still a powerful effect. No, I mean, for decks that were trying to use Cryptolith, right? Like those sorts of decks where it's just like a pile of creatures and then like a couple payoffs that are good with creatures. Like it was really missing a creature that did interact with stuff. Mm -hmm. And 
Uh, Fairgrounds Warden is like okay. It's just like too much downside. So like I think I think this will actually see some play. It's just like it's a hole that gets filled, which is nice. Like rekindling Phoenix, for example, is just horrible against this card in like every facet, right? Right, right. Huge tempo advantage for sure. What else? I don't know. There's like some random dragons, some death barons. There's a human for consideration of uh, inclusion in the modern humans deck. Isareth the Awakener. Uh, I'm not quite sold on this is something the humans deck wants to be doing, but maybe as a sideboard card at some point, this will be the tool that humans needs to keep track of. I mean, every human that gets printed from this point forward, you have to at least give it consideration uh, in the modern humans deck because they have access to all the colors. So if there's a human, see what it does for you. I don't think it passes the test because of the fact it doesn't provide value. Like on entering the battlefield. Yeah, or dice trigger or whatever. It is a three-drop right. legend, which uh, kind of gets my Mox Amber gears turning. Okay. okay so there's there that. We have Elvish Clan Caller, which is a, a two-mana elf lord, and there are some other cool elves in the set, so maybe Marwyn is doing some things. Yeah, Mana Sync, too. I think this card's pretty neat, and it wouldn't surprise me if this sees a little bit of play as well. Yeah, I mean, again, it all just depends on what's around it, right? Like, are there elves that are worth pumping and building around and whatnot? Are there chain whirlers kill, killing the elvish clan caller as soon as it enters play? All of these yeah. things should be considered. Yeah. I mean, if you can go like Lanor Elves into this and then have like a blossoming defense type of thing, then maybe. you're asking for a lot right now. You're asking Dude, for a I lot. Dude, I know. I know. Diagraph Ghoul, I'm happy exists. Mono Black Aggro can now play like 31 drops if it wants. Sure. What about Crucible of Worlds? That's a card I, I've definitely loved in the past. You know, I don't see any immediate huge game-breaking applications for it, but it wouldn't surprise me if you see some Crucible of Worlds floating around. I don't know. There's already Excavator, right? Yeah, but this is like, I, I think the important distinction is a lot of times there's decks that really benefit from the Crucible of Worlds effect that, number one, don't want to play any creatures. Number two, are not green. Something like, you know, control mirrors where there are lands floating in the graveyard and there's not really any right now. Like we're not in a fetch land format. You're not playing Terramorphic Expanse um, really only by like things like Liliana and uh, no, Champion. I mean, Field of Ruin in the memorials. Like that, Field of that's Ruin, that's cool. Yeah, okay. So so there's some potential for this to be included in control decks where you just like never want to miss a land drop and you get some some little bits of value here and there. Wayward Swordtooth is nice. You can use Crucible in improvised decks and just go ham with uh inventor's fair or whatever like that's way too dirtily but could yeah, be well, a reasonable thing if you're talking slow dirtily combos you know you've got my attention so yeah oh yeah i mean i do like wayward sword tooth but i want to make sure there's nothing else i missed that i wanted to talk about i i, I think those are kind of the hits as it stands right now i mean i could do a, a bit of complaining about some of these cards um, if we're in the market for that, the four mana hex proof five, three, this is definitely just going to ruin some games of limited. At least it's an uncommon and not a common, but I, I wish this would stop happening. I, I hope there's no enchantments whatsoever in the set to put on vine mare. And I'm never just losing to a huge life linking flying vine mare, but it's going to happen. And I'm already sad about it. This probably has constructed applications, right? Oh, I, like it has to. I think so. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it, it's good for constructed that Hexproof starts at four because that keeps it challenging, but still playable. 
in limited, it, it goes kind of off the charts at four, and this card is probably problematic. But in constructed, I, th- I think four is the sweet spot where there's still a lot of interesting space, and this is just going to be like a very powerful threat against a lot of specific matchups. I can see this getting a lot of sideboard play from green and aggressive decks for sure. Uh, maybe some deck is interested in like doing this and Hydra and just having a lot of ways to protect those two creatures. Maybe just like Hadana's climb decks want to go into Vine Mare and ride Vine Mare really hard in that spot. That doesn't sound awful to me at all, actually. So uh, it wouldn't surprise me if this makes it its way into Constructed. Yeah, I, th- I think this is slightly worse than Bristling Hydra, but not by a whole lot. And Bristling Hydra's time is coming to an end, too. Is It's right. worth keeping track of at some point. Very soon, we're going to have to rely on different cards to get the job done. And Vine Mare is going to be doing the job for sure. I just hope it's not doing it against me in Limited. That's all I ask. Yeah, so this is pretty clearly like a Phantom Centaur throwback, right? And it is weird to me that this is supposed to be part of the elo- like the uh, hate cycle, right? Like, can't be blocked by red creatures and, like, gains life. It's like, okay, sure, like, this card is supposed to be good against burn decks, right? Vine Mare is just good against everyone. Yeah. Like, Hex- Hexproof is good against everyone. It feels out of place in the cycle. It, it's it's got a lot more game than the other cards. Although I do think some of the other cards are are quite fine, uh, but they're more narrowly tailored and just like going to beat up on certain decks. Whereas Vine Mare is going to beat up everyone. Yeah, it's silly. What what can we do with hexproof creatures besides Sedanus Climb? Uh, there's lifelink type stuff floating around. There's on Sarah's wings. Um, this is expensive. Yeah, just m- more things to cartouche, I guess. Yeah, there's also, uh, I'm blanking on the card. You were really high on it, and it sees play in like, the already existing Auras deck, the draw card when it's attacking. Although if you have like a 6-3 attacking with Hexproof, you probably don't need to draw too many more cards. But you know, there, there, is, there has already been a successful quote-unquote Hexproof deck floating around. There's also a, a Verduran Enchantress in this set as well. Seder Enchanter at Uncommon. Whenever you cast an enchantment spell, draw a card. And that's white, green, one, two, two, Seder Druid. That's probably good enough in some contexts. So, uh, yeah, you, you could probably go ham with that and SRAM. Right, right. So you could see something coming together based on all these cards. Uh, some of these cards and like some of the lifelink stuff and a Johnny just kind of like merging together, maybe. Right, right. And a lot of this stuff is, is going to stick around post. Obviously, not SRAM, but. Some of the other cards we're talking are, are still going to be here post-rotation, annoyingly killing you going forward. So <laughs> look forward to that. Yeah, look look forward to some fun and awesome magic gameplay. Uh, at least Settle the Wreckage is still floating around. Yeah, are there any edicts? Settle, settle counts. Doomfall. Yeah, okay. There's a couple. We still have Trial right now, right? We haven't moved out of the Trial phase yet. It's still an Amonkhet, so... Mm-hmm, okay. There's a couple floating around. There's answers, but... Still feels bad, man. Nobody nobody wants to lose to the Hexproof creatures. Nah. Uh, Cleansing Nova is also pretty tight. Yeah, this is a cool card. Three dub-dub, sorcery, choose one, destroy all creatures, or destroy all artifacts and enchantments. Clean Wrath, that gets some value in other places. I mean, this would... There's a theoretical control deck that would that would happily play this and take both options. The current ones would not. You can't destroy your own uh, enchantment-based removal. That's problematic. But there's there's other existing decks that could pick this up and be very happy about it. Now this this could be the type of sideboard card for like maybe not like white black vehicles specifically, maybe like the white black mid range decks that are going around where it's like you know this can pick off like all the cast outs or thopters and treasure maps. Like you know, 
if any sort of like weirdo sideways artifact or enchantment deck shows up, like this is a good tool to have around. Yeah, good check for sure. Other than that, uh, pretty normal stuff. I'm very happy to see Scapeshift getting reprinted. Yeah, unlikely to do anything. I mean, I can't, I can't think of any context where you're scapeshifting too much for value. Uh, it's pretty much only ever gotten Valakuts, but nice to bring the price down a little bit. I don't foresee this seeing standard play. I mean, do you have any big designs for scapeshift and standard going forward? No, of course not. But like scapeshift crucible is kind of a thing. Yeah, a, a very mediocre thing, I think. What's the the creature that? dies and you return all your lands i don't know the name of it is it world something world shaper maybe yeah something like that it's like all right fine you could do that end up with 30 mana and then cast a bunch of time walks there you go oh now you're talking my language as soon as you said time walk you had me you just you just had to do the right stupid thing and i got real excited so yeah classic fog scape shift time walk deck sold let's leave it up god you're gonna have to play like 30 land in your deck I'm very comfortable doing that. So you, you know that's not going to be a problem for me. Word. All right. Do we have a question? We do have a question from Martin Z999. And Martin Z asks, how does being the most popular MTG podcast right now, except that you are, affect your game style slash personality? Do you feel more pressure to succeed or to always have the best deck? Do you feel it affects how you voice your opinions or ideas to the community. I think that's a really interesting question, Martin, and I appreciate the props. I don't know if we're the most popular MTG podcast, but if we're the most popular in your heart, that's what really matters to me. So that's cool. Why don't you take this one, Jerry? Why don't you start us off and and, and give your takeaway? Because I think our answer is going to be very different here, actually. Okay. For starters, I think popularity comes down to probably just downloads or listens and i'm not sure that we are number one or like yeah there's there's no way right because like limited resources has to have us crushed i think so i i don't know the numbers specifically but i would assume we are not yet the most popular by most metrics although don't get it twisted we will be at some point we're coming for that number one spot lr be ready oh yeah but not yet yeah not giving up for sure uh the the other thing is like uh you know there's another question in here about momentum and like yeah, I, I kind of buy into that because it it does seem like kind of, you know, the new hot place to get technology or whatever. So I think as far as like fastest growing, we are probably number one. And that's rad. Mm-hmm. For sure. Uh, but other than that, as for answering the actual question, the reason that we have momentum and everything is probably just because we do what we do. And whatever popularity we have as a result of that or momentum, we're just going to keep doing what we have been doing and maybe a little bit bigger, a little bit better, you know, like five episodes a month instead of four and things like that along those lines. But like, I I feel like the two are related, right? It's like we are popular because we're good and we're just going to continue to do good things. Yeah. So I want to drill down a little bit more on like the effects of having the podcast on myself, because that, I, I think that's a huge part of Martin's question. He's, he asks, does it affect your game style personality? And your answer is spot on. I, I think this works because this is just me and you having a conversation every week about the things we want to talk about. Like We, we care a lot about magic. We love talking about new technology. We love talking about metagames. In a lot of ways, it's really easy for us to make this cast because... We we probably sit down and have a chat anyway if we didn't do do it for people to listen to every week. So that part's pretty easy. Uh, as far as pressure to succeed, that's changed for me over time. Like 
when I first started doing the cast, I felt a lot of pressure to succeed at magic tournaments. Like I had to justify my spot. I thought if I didn't quickly become a platinum pro, like majors and Andrew, that people would bail on the podcast. I don't feel that anymore. I feel like my job is to be the best podcaster possible to make the show the best I can make it. If I accompany that with great magic results, so be it. I feel pressure to su- pressure to succeed in this arena. I want to make the best podcast possible. And that's where the pressure is coming from right now. Uh, as far as how it affects how I voice my opinions or ideas, the community, the only thing I will say is that I talked about it a little bit earlier when I'm like giving the hard sell on something like Nexus of Fate, I, I feel a little almost guilty. Like I'm kind of, I don't know, burying development by hyping a card that they don't expect to see do a lot. It's, it's a weird feeling to have um, because I anticipate a lot of people will pick up Nexus of Fate on my recommendation, but I'm not making that recommendation to throw a wrench into the gears and and change up the way things are going to go forward. I, I just see it as a really powerful card. So that does cross my mind, but on the whole, I'm just going to tell people my opinions. I'm pretty comfortable being who I am, uh, having my my biases and, and, and my role on the cast. And I don't know. I, I don't think our success really changes that all that much. It our success is a product of getting to do what we love, and that's not going to change going forward. So it's all smooth sailing from here, hopefully. Yeah, I mean, we've we've gotten to where we are by being who we are. So to try to do something else like, oh, man, I, I better hope that I'm not found out as a fraud or whatever. It's just like I think that would just be completely foolish, right? Mm-hmm. Because, yeah, we the, the things are related. Absolutely. For sure. That's game. Good luck.